With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Back for another episode of Defense with DC, and this week we focus on learning from the Ole Miss-Kentucky game and some of the things that Ole Miss was doing on defense. Situationally, we'll focus on the four-minute drill and getting your best players out on the field for a max field goal block. And finally, our option tips, we'll talk about Georgia State and Army defensive end play and defending the QB sweep. So, Dan, I'm excited to dig into these topics today. Uh, you're really focused in putting together some ideas here from this past weekend. It was a great week of football. There was plenty of stuff to learn from Keith. Uh, it was really nice to be able to sit around and watch some of it. So excited to talk about it. All right. So let's dig into the main one here. Uh, there was a lot that you liked in the Ole Miss game and some unique things that we're doing and some things we can learn from as well. And you started off in seeing something that you related to the old Desert Swarm defense. Talk to us about what you saw there. The front that they used some was two five techniques in a shaded nose, uh, one side or the other. So what that opens up is it opens up a two-gap bubble on one side, right? So the A and B gap is open away from the shaded nose. So they were able to you know, run the backer through the B gap some, which you know we'll talk kind of about that as a, as a simulated pressure. But it really gets you back to four down. And that kind of reminds me of the Desert Swarm a little bit where they were using the Mike backer as the three technique sometimes. And, you know, I know that uh, I think Rocky Long did that some too at San Diego State. I remember watching some cut-ups of that. So it's not completely uncommon. It's not something you see a lot. So sometimes the, the front looks a little awkward or a little soft at times. But if you watch the game, Ole Miss was anything but soft. It's just it's interesting. It's something you don't see often. So they were typically to the side of the shaded nose. They would bring the rush and cross the nose and then the four-eye on that side. If they were going to bring the rush, they typically reduced to a four-eye he would crash into the guard and those would cross the center and you'd get back to four down spacing that way. Or they would bring the backer through the B gap to that side to where the open side was. So they had a couple things to play off of it. They were extremely aggressive. The D-line played extremely vertical off their movements. And if you look at the stats, they had nine TFLs in the game. The stats, if you look at the box score, the stats in that game were very similar. The pass yards, rush yards, everything. The two biggest differences, Kentucky turned the ball over two times to Ole Miss is one, and the TFLs were like nine to three. So Ole Miss was able to get in the backfield, able to beat blocks, able to pressure. So I thought that just that use of that front was 
I, I don't know that that's what they've been doing all year or how well it was scouted or how often they've done that, but I thought that use of the front was very effective for them. So, In looking at that, you know, we hear a lot of, of you know, well, this is how you get to a four-man front from this look or that look. And some of those have become standardized, almost to the point where an offensive coordinator has those answers right away. How does something like this, and again, we don't know, maybe this was already on tape, but but something that looks unique, how does it um, present some benefits to a defense, and what things would you focus on if you were using something a little bit unique to get to those fronts and make sure that you coached up during the week? I think if you're going to do something unique, it has to still be multiple enough that it can't be just, well, it's A or B. And there's got to be C and D. So when we line up in that front, if it's always, hey, if we reduce one side to a four-eye, the rush is coming. If they leave that side in the five technique, the mic's probably plugging the B gap. If you give an offense A or B out of one picture, they're usually pretty efficient in either picking up your pressures or uh, seeing your coverage, whatever the case may be. So you, you got to be able to give C and D out of that same picture. And, you know, that could just be as simple as tagging that front and then stemming away from it or – using that front in a, in a regular call where they got to move back to just regular spacing, uh, post-snap, something like that. But we can't let an offense think, hey, they line up like this. It's going to be A or B, and here's the key to tell you. And I think that Ole Miss did a really good job of that because they had multiple pressures off of it. They Obviously, they ran, like I said, the mic plug. They ran a couple fire zones off of it. And you, you can tell in the game because there were times when the – center would go back like he was trying to help on the shade to get to the zone and he would turn back and that guy was stunting backwards into the guard and the mic come flying through the a gap and made a play in the backfield so yeah i would think that they were probably telling the center like if you feel like he's going to stunt back you got to go straight to the mic and they gave enough indecision with the nose crossing the center enough that he was expecting him to cross and he was going to rake him into the front side a gap and block him and that is not the case on that play and he'd be at his shoulders turn and might come flying through there so you see enough of those little things on the tape to tell you that Ole Miss was mixing up en- enough for Kentucky's offensive line to make some mistakes. We've talked about this a little bit in the past, I believe, but looking at movement and coaching up movement, movement's great. I mean, it, it's it's something early in the week, offensively, we're getting things in, we're going against base downs, but, you know, Tuesday we're going to make it difficult and give them, give them movements, you know, in our first live practice. I mean, it's something we, we really focused on, so it's difficult. But I also see situations where I think it's maybe not coached up as well on the defensive side, and the movement's great, but now all of a sudden, you know, gaps get are getting washed. You don't hold a gap on the move. It becomes a little bit different, right? Your momentum gets used against you. So I guess just some coaching points or tips on coaching up that movement so – you remain sound. So those gaps, you know, don't get washed down or blown open by that movement and using momentum against you. I think first of all, you have to decide, you know, as a philosophy and as a staff, what do you want out of the movement? You know, some, sometimes do you want to step, stick one gap and penetrate, stick one gap and hold the gap? Do you want to be stepping at the next adjacent player and reading him? as in if he's coming at you, crossing one more, or if he goes away, kind of coming off his hip and, and penetrating. So I think a big thing is what do we want to do? How do we want to fit it? I would say typically in my past and just different places I've been, if we're running a pressure where we're moving everybody, 
we want to read the next adjacent player and then penetrate off of the look he gives us. So if you're stepping directly at him on a 45 and he comes at you, you're going to cross him and then get vertical in that next gap. If he goes away, you're going to come off his hip and try to get vertical. So that's like a full line move. Let's say we're bringing a fire zone pressure and that's a full line movement. And that's probably what you see most common. Now, if you're going to stunt a four man, so sometimes if you're a four down, you're just going to change the bubble, right? You're going to stunt the three and the two eye and just kind of change the bubble. To me, you still want to step to play a technique. So that's got to be uh, from a, a little bit more of a lateral step. Pre-snap, got to understand kind of where the back is. And, and if you're going to make the trip, you know, I don't think it's the end of the world if you don't make the trip, if the zone's going the same way you're trying to step. But, you know, the backers and the off-the-ball defenders who have gaps and are playing off, you have to understand that if the back is, if the zone is going to move the same way we're moving, there's a good chance the guys don't make it. they got to come off the hip and try to cancel the gap they're getting to from behind the line of scrimmage. And sometimes that's hard. It doesn't always happen. So the backers got to understand that. Right? The ultimate goal when we do that is get the ball cut off and go backside. The backers fall back with it anyway. But I think that just define what you want out of it. Do, do we want these guys to step lateral and penetrate vertical on some of these? Do we want them to step lateral and play their gaps? So we're just going to play four down, but it's going to be the three technique the other way post-snap. The biggest part to me, define what you want out of it and then try to get that part coached as far as we're going to hold gaps, we're going to penetrate, how we're going to handle that. Now, a lot of movement gets coached up, you know, especially early in the week or without pads against cans. It's great to know the assignment, but you have to feel the technique. What drills do you like for your defensive line to be able to feel that technique on those? You know, it, it, it's really, you got to go against some live bodies and your, and your pod work think that in any situation you can get with the offensive line and work those two-man combinations and one-on-one blocks and where you can have uh, work your key drills I don't know everybody coaches the four eyes a little different and I've been places where we've coached it as a you know you have a visual key and a pressure key or everything or you know the other way is just to coach it like a two-eye off the tackle but Anytime that you can get with the offensive line and do that, I think is important. You know, the doing it with D linemen and doing it with the different things that you can do in your indie is great. And those are built up to it, but nobody is going to give you the, the suddenness of movement, like an O line, like an actual O lineman would. So I think that the big part of that though, is building out and teaching and coaching the drill to where you can do it a lot. It doesn't have to be the most violent drills. Right. The, the offensive line get off and get in hand placement is extremely important. The, the D line key read is extremely important. Those things don't have to be violent. So we have to get to that point where you, know, you could do it on a Thursday if you're just in like your spider pads or if you're, you know, in shoulder pads. You can do those drills. People have to be going to the ground to do that. So if we can get that coach where we really understand what, what the expectation of the drill is where the D-line and the O-line can work together and get that stuff done. I think it's extremely beneficial for both groups. Looking at some of the things Ritz Gangrello was doing on the offensive side of the ball with Kentucky, uh, using the condensed sets, right? That's something that we're seeing all over football. You certainly see it a ton in the NFL. It's made its way into college ball. I'm seeing it on Friday nights as well. Uh, the, The compressed sets obviously give you some advantages as an offense. So, We'd like to get your thoughts on defending those condensed sets and some of the, the key things you need to do. Yeah, I don't know that Kentucky split a wide receiver out to the numbers the entire game. I can't think of one play right now where they had a wide receiver standing on the numbers. So, obviously, if you watch the NFL, that's what you see game in and game out. 
if you watch college football, you see it some now. You see it more than you used to. It used to be, man, you got in those two-by-two two condensed sets. You were about to get double-quick out or you were about to get smashed. Maybe you would get a scissors combination. Maybe you would get snag seven uh, on the side of the back. But you weren't getting run plays. You weren't getting much. Like They had a specific package they got in that for. And if you see that now, you got a lot of things you got to work out. And I know a lot of people are using different ways to tip the running game numbers out of that and different ways to, to crack your support players. So I think that those are situations you really got to practice. In. And that's got to be a, a day one install now of how we're going to make adjustments. If we're split safety operation, how are we going to adjust to these condensed sets? Are we going to cloud them? Are we going to try to play it out as quarters? Or are we going to have some other adjustments that we can make to those condensed sets? But we have to understand they are making it extremely easy for the offense to crack and push your support players out. So we've got to have creative options to play split safety defense using one of those DBs in the run fit somehow based on the release of the receiver. I think that maybe some things I wouldn't divulge on here, but we try to be really creative with that, especially on the backside when you get a cut X and just some of the things that people will do back there and how they'll crack your safeties and, and how they'll stem inside to do that. And then obviously you always have to be protected for the crack and go. So just as a base install, as a day one, to be able to teach what you're going to do in reduced fits and how you're going to get the DBs in there. And one thing, you get into the one high structures, especially at cover three, and this happened to Ole Miss some, where it can become difficult is the corner who's responsible for that tight end vertical. Say it's a nub. He's responsible for the tight end vertical. He is in a block read, is what I call block read off that tight end. If he blocks down, now the corner got to show up in the run set. And tight end releases, obviously, he's got to cover him. So it, it does put the corner in a bind, and he's got to be very decisive when the tight end makes his move. So you saw that a little bit with Ole Miss. Kentucky was running a little trap play back there where they were kicking their, like, stand-up buck out, and the corner's got to fit in there. Tight end's down hard, and he's just not triggering probably the way he looked all week in practice. I'm sure he looked much better, and I'm sure they're coaching really hard, but you know, he's got to trigger and make the play. He's the last guy there in one high defense. So I think that just coaching that stuff and, and beating that into your guys because that's where the game is, seems to be going. You know, I mean, the spread, it's interesting. You know, the, the spread is the spread, and, and there's a lot of teams that still want to max you out and, you know, try to get you all over the field, but there's a lot of teams starting to condense back down so they can not let you have your safeties tee off on people. And that's typically what's happened over time for us is the first game or two, we have safeties that make a lot of plays. They look really aggressive coming downhill and then splits start to shrink and the wideouts start to push crack the safeties and the corners got to start to adjust and get in there and fit. And we got to come up with some creative ways to, make sure we have somebody covering that guy on the crack and somebody fitting the run based on the releases and things. So it's extremely important. It's a big part of the game now is reduced sets and how you're going to use your secondary support. I know one thing you saw and one way to get those safeties involved is to to uh, buzz them into the box. And uh, obviously that's not just something you call. It has to be practiced. So your thoughts on some of those sims, some of those pressures that have that buzz safety. Yeah. Ole Miss ran that a decent amount. You know, they were plugging the mic and then dropping the field safety in there to be the, the strong hook player, which I think a lot of – that's a basic sim pressure. I think a lot of people that are odd defense and run sim pressures do that. Um, it's pretty common. I know I've been part of running that same call. The, the safety – 
has to work with that full linebacker now, just like the Mike does on every snap. So it, it can be a little bit taxing for him. I mean, when you think about fitting gap schemes and, and seeing pullers and all the variations that a Mike backer can see and play like that safety has to be able to play all those at that time. You know, I mean, hopefully you know, you're probably trying to call him in situations you, you don't really want him to have to get in there and spill the guard on power. You know, you might not be calling it quite in those situations or, you know, whatever the case may be, but it can always happen. So I think that just teaching him the understanding, hey, you're the Mike backer on this play, and here's who we have to keep. And I think that you have to get his mind into the linebacker key structure. And so what was happening, you know, Kentucky was doing a good job with pre-snap motion and then movement post-snap to where they were tipping the numbers, kind of like we talked about last week or maybe two weeks ago. They were going from, like, flow distribution to flood distribution or basic distribution, and they were moving two guys at, you know, one pre-snap, one post-snap to where, okay, now they're putting that safety in a bind. He's in a completely different fit. Uh, one time he had come down weak, and the mic had ran. It ended up from, like, a two-back look to a three-by-one at the end or at post-snap. The mic had pushed out to the D-gap, and the safety really had to get to the front side uh, B, and he just wasn't unable to get there. You know, uh, it just comes down to if the Will linebacker was standing there, he would have probably been keying the right things for a linebacker, and he probably would have made the trip over there. But, you know, you start to get those motions, and you tell you, know, you tell the safety typically you're going to replace the mic. Well, if they bump to a three-by-one on a motion, the mic's – unless you're trading the, trading the blitz with the Will – the mic's still plugging where he's plugging. So if you're telling the safety all the time, hey, you're going to replace the guy that's going, well, if it goes three by one, you can't really replace him. you got to replace him the D-gap. So the mic's still going to run the pressure internally is what Ole Miss was doing, and that's typically how people do it. So the safety really – sometimes you'll tell them, hey, you got to replace the blitzer, replace the blitzer, but you really need to fall into where the alignment would be for the strong hook player. So I think that's a, an important distinction. And then you got to get it with all the motions. It goes back to kind of what we've been talking about is I got to get that look first, all the motions and all the pre-snap motions, all the post-snap number changes, all that. So I think that getting those guys in the linebacker mentality, getting them on the can, same way you do with inside linebackers and, and knowing who to key when they drop down in the box to, to fit where they got to fit is extremely important. Yeah. I was going to mention they're, they're essentially becoming that linebacker. So Hey, there's guys that you can drop down and they're going to do it because they're athletes and they're instinctual and they'll find a way to get it done. I think there's some guys that, especially if they're younger, you got to drill up on those. So you mentioned, you know, teaching them, you know, reading the cans or whatever, you know, understanding where, where their keys are. What other things would you make sure that you coached up with these guys technique wise just so that if you're going to do this, you remain sound, you remain effective, and they have the tools that they need to be successful there. I think it's a different block destruction than you're typically using at safety. I mean, you're going to end up having to go near foot, what I call power foot strike, and, and get over top of blocks. I think that's something that, you know, if you're playing a gap scheme team and this is something that you're going to do, I think that is something that you have to really really drill to those guys is that this is going to be different type of blocks you're taking on and this is not you out there versus number two receiver setting an edge on a bubble screen like this is a lot different you know and then you get into the debate i guess or the internal debate with yourself do we want to hold the look and walk him into it or do i want him down with his feet in the ground playing like a linebacker so 
that comes down to how much do you think you're going to get out of holding the disguise? Do you really think that the mic, you know, if he goes on the snap and that safety goes, falls in on the snap, he's going to probably be at, you know, by the time the ball's handed off, he's going to be at seven or eight. Is that good enough? Right. So I think those are the things you have to make a decision as a coach and is depends on where you're blitzing as well. Like if you're going to take the A gap on some of these, you're going to go away from the back and take the A gap on some of these, the ball's probably going to get cut off. So it's probably not as big of a deal to get him down there faster. But if you're going to run, run to the back, the guy's going to try to skin off the backside guards back hip and the ball's definitely probably either going to, he's going to hit it or the ball's going to jump cut behind him typically what's going to happen so you know then that becomes now he's really got to play like a a fallback backer on that case so would you want his cleats on the ground for that probably would so it just kind of comes down to how does it fit within our scheme or what are we really going to ask the guy to do but the block destruction is a lot different the lateral movement is a lot different and then just seeing guards and seeing pullers you know knowing who to key knowing the communication from the backers i mean i think in everybody's indie and everybody's meetings when they're coaching linebackers you know, you're getting pull calls, getting back, back, backs, or slice, 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 whatever it is off the tight end on the split zone actions, those type of things. And for backers, that becomes second nature. It just depends on how much you do it. But if you're not tying the safeties into that on a lot of different plays, like maybe you would in like uh, cover three, you do a decent amount if you're, you know, uh, skying them down weak, things like that. But they have to be very alert for that communication that goes on between the two inside linebackers so that they're fitting it the right way. Coach, moving on to situational football, the thing we focused on this week, end of the game, specifically the four-minute. We've talked about a few of these things before, but in regard to the four-minute, what thoughts and tips do you have this week? Geez, I, you know, I hate being in four-minute because that means you're, you're losing at the end of the game, but I do love what a good, good four-minute stop represents with your defense. I mean, when you talk about, players that step up and make plays when when it counts when it matters the most when when you're down one score with a few minutes left in the game and you're trying to just give your offense one more shot at it I think there's no greater test of just the resolve and the toughness of your defense because you know obviously the other team has the momentum they have one goal which is to get a couple first downs if they can get a couple first downs the game is over but everybody knows what they got to do right they got to run the ball and here it comes so think just having your guys prepared for that you know it it is really a a defining part of to me the toughness and and just the the heart of a defense so a couple things I guess I I keep a four-minute book on the sideline the same as a two-minute right those cards would be in there and what I think a lot of people say we talk about this I've had this conversation with a lot of different coaches but well typically it's just their plays and and that's true it a lot of times it is just their offense but I think if it's a 11 personnel run team what happens a lot is they're going to run the exact same plays. They're going to do it out of 12, though. Right? They're going to protect their edges. Right? They don't yeah. want negatives. Get negatives, that's going to be the biggest issue. So if they're going to, they're going to protect their edges, putting the extra tight end in there, and they're going to run split zone you know, back to there and end up basically creating a four-man surface or creating a wing post-snap. Or they're going to go you know, create ace post-snap by starting a wing set and run split zone back the other way. And then you know, some teams will run counter. Some teams won't pull guys just for the chance of getting negative. So you have all those little scenarios so that you really, it's important to me to scout that stuff. So if I know if I've got three, four minute drives on this offense coordinator, and again, this would be something else in that same library we talked about last week. Yes. If you have a two minute shot of this offense coordinator, I'm going to have four minutes too, because it might be a team that runs counter consistently, but they won't do it in four minutes. So if that's the case, me telling the linebackers and the safeties before they go out there, hey, 
Now, remember, you're going to get a lot of zone here. They're not going to pull people in this, okay? I think that's important. I think that's important to understand that. And then I also think another thing that you have to scout is are they going to throw the ball on third and medium or third and short? Like, what are they going to do? Are they going to value running you out with time or are they going to try to value getting the first down? I know the amount of timeouts, the amount of time left goes into play with that. But, but just any information you can gather from that I think is really important. So putting those four-minute drives in the library, scouting them, knowing what these people, this coordinator and this head coach believe in, I think is really important when you get in those situations. Because, again, we're talking about situations that are going to come up, and we're going into week six of the college season. High school teams are falling into playoff spots already. Like, these are the situations that can make or break a season. And I think that, that just the more preparation you can have. I, I, look at, I look at this. When you get into halfway through the year, whatever level you're executing at, you can coach and, and you could, can and should coach extremely hard to improve that. It might not change that much. If you're as a defense by week six executing at a 72% generally, you probably won't get to 95% execution by the end of the year. Okay. Like you might be able to get to 78, might be able to get to 80, but you're probably not going to drastically improve that. But you can make sure when these situations come up that you've got them coached, you're prepared for them, the players have seen them, and that they're more prepared for them than the. Than the players are playing against so I think that these are the ways you can make a big difference in coaching down the stretch and so as it you know as it takes a four minute so I like having those cards on the sideline saying here's the pressures we're going to use okay I know we've been running this pressure all game but we haven't had to run it against 12 because they haven't been in 12 but they're going to be in 12 in this four minute drive so here's how we're going to you know run this two off the edge versus tight end surface as opposed to the two-man surface we've been running against so this is where we got to line up this is what we got to do okay here is the one play action pass they ran in four minutes. So if you see this formation, especially on third down, be alert that, you know, they might run split zone naked or, or whatever the case may be. And just to prepare them for that and just mentally prepare them. That this is our chance to get the ball back for the offense and give them one more shot. And this is when guys got to step up and make a play. So I, again, these situations, we have to be prepared for them as coaches. We have to have the players ready for them. We have to show it to the players. During the week, I try to show them at least one, you know, one drive of it and just, hey, this is what happened in four minutes. You know, if we get in that situation, expect this, expect this, especially if there's a pass, you know, use it some little play action deal that a lot of times they get, right? I mean, you're selling out the blitz and guys are thinking everything's going to be a run and third and four. No matter what you tell them, they go out there and, you know, we've seen it a million times, some tight ends turn loose in the flat and first down, game's over. Take a lot of pride in four-minute situations because, you know, they can win you a game. The other two situations are at the end of the game, defending what you call Boise. I think we, we brought this up last week, but that last play out of range throw. So you, you, you don't have the ability to throw it to the end zone, so you're going to have to throw it to somebody in the middle, on the outside, and, and start pitching that around. The last situation was the max field goal and getting guys on the field. So a couple things there at the end of the game. Thoughts on those? So, yeah, so if they're out of range, they have one play left or, you know, maybe it's four or five seconds left and, and they can't get in range, you know, they're going to try to throw to somebody and start pitching the ball back and forth. And I call that Boise. And I think now, I don't know that today's players even know why anybody would call that Boise. <laughs> I'm not I don't that old, but I, I date myself a little bit because they're like, certainly they don't, you know, college players today that you're recruiting, they have no idea why you would call that Boise, but we always refer to it as Boise. We just tag it. I think you can just name it anything, you know, out of range, last chance. I heard all that. But I think the important thing is, again, it's one of those situations, man, I, I couldn't imagine. If you lose a game that way, you're going to be you're gonna be sick. I mean, you're going to be dead sick. So w what we did 
was we line up in the same structure that we line up in for Hail Mary. It's, it's a three deep, three deep safeties, three man front, and then everybody up front is man to man. Everybody else is in man. So you got five on five, everybody else. And now where we maybe do it a little different and where we try to coach it just so we don't get in a bad situation, doesn't look like a fifth grade basketball game where everybody just runs the ball, is the D-line, once the ball's thrown, will always stay behind the ball. They'll stay behind the ball, and they will fan out into thirds of the field. So you got three D-linemen, the nose will run the middle of the field. He'll stay between the hashes with college hashes, and each end will stay from hash to sideline, hash to sideline. And now the three deep safeties, they will stay in their third of the field. And so we're trying to keep the D-line behind the ball, the safeties in front of the ball, and we're trying to compress that area, okay? They don't leave their third of the field until the ball takes vertical direction. Now, if it does, then everybody got to rally the ball and get it down. But as the ball's still going lateral, they stay on their side of the field, okay? They stay in their third of the field because we do not want to leave a guy leak and have an issue, right? So, uh, and everybody else stays with their man. So you got three guys compressing it from the back, three guys compressing it from the top, and then everybody else stays with their man. And, you know, sometimes you, you lose your man. Maybe he had the ball and you tried to tackle him and you fell down. And now, look, somebody's free, right? He pitches it and then he runs over to the side. That's where the other guy's got to come into play and make sure that we're not turning guys loose to the side. So I think it's really important to coach this, to have a plan for it. Again, you do not want to look up that scoreboard 0-0 zero, zero, and somebody's dancing in the end zone off of 17 laterals. So, you know, that's our plan for it. We keep the D-line behind the ball. They fan out in their third of the field. The three deep safety stay in their third of the field. We try to compress the space that they can play in. Everybody else stays in man. We try to get it on the ground as fast as we can. Ball takes vertical direction. Everybody's got to rally and tackle it. I think having a plan for that is extremely important. You know, and we, we've seen it here and there. But, you know, make sure if you fought hard to win a game and you're in a position to win a game that you can close that damn thing out. Yeah, and speaking of closing it out, the other situation, end of game, is that last second field goal and obviously you want to do everything you can to make sure that thing's not getting through the uprights so the approach to that yeah so i know that this might be a special teams play per se but most of the time that i've been around that the defensive staff runs the field goal block team one thing i would say what happens there's a couple things is you don't a lot of times it's hard to you know get offensive players on your field goal block team so so typically, I would never use an offensive player for PATs or for field goals that don't come off of a timeout. But when there is a situation at the end of the game where there's a timeout or we can get sub who we want, we really want to have a max block team. Like whoever the 11 best blockers are, we really want to have them out there. And I say this from experience as a younger coach, one of my first full-time jobs in, in Division One football, I ran a field goal block team, and luckily it was an end-of-half situation, and we called timeout. And the head coach is kind of wondering where the max block team is. Like, we're going to put these tall receivers out there. And I go back in my head when he's asking me about that to a conversation in the staff room during training camp where we were like, eh, you know, I don't know if we're going to need a max block team. We got a couple of really good, we got a pretty good rush as a defense. And we got a couple of really good players on our defense, twi twitchy long guys that get back there. I don't know if we need to do that. Okay. And then, you know, once this, once we're in that situation that, the thoughts and feelings are different. So I think not to take too much of an aside, but I learned in that moment when you have a part of being a good assistant, whatever 10, 15, 20 square feet you're in charge of within the program, you got to advocate for it. And I did not do that well enough to advocate to have a max block team. And even though the head coach at the time, it, it, that in that moment, in that one meeting, wasn't overly 
excited about putting one in, I should have realized and known and, and had the foresight to see like, hey, we're going to need this thing sometime. And, and if my name's going to be on the field goal block team, then I need to make sure that we have a max block team ready for that situation. So I think that that was a, a great learning experience as an assistant, but you have to advocate for the things you're in charge of. And even if it's hard or it's painful or, you know, trying to find offensive players is difficult, there's going to be a time when you want to do that. So just make sure you have a max block team. I know it's, um, at UMass, we had two young wide receivers. They were like six, six, both really tall, long guys are going to be great players uh, as they get older and develop. But man, we had a great max block team. We weren't in those situations very often, but we had, uh, it was hard to get the ball by those guys. We would put both of them out there and you know, we had a max middle, max left, max right, and, and try to line those guys up with the flight line of the ball and jump and, and hit the ball. But, you know, schematically, I think anybody could probably draw up a, a good answer, but it's building that out, using the offensive players, having a system to make sure that you can get communicated to the offensive coaches. Hey, we need these two guys down here. This is the situation we're in. We're going to go max block. Everybody's got to have an awareness of that, right? And then, you know, you got to make a decision. If, if it's a mayday situation, can we get that done? Can we get the map out there, you know, that's, those are the things that become hard. Those are the conversations you're always going to have because the worst thing you can do is end up with 12 and give them an extra five yards. The next worst thing you can do is not rush them. So you, you have to, if you're really, really going to commit to it, I know some people do. I mean, I can think back to Marshall two years ago when Doc Holiday was still the head coach, they had their tallest offensive lineman on every field goal block. They were out there on PAT block. So they were extremely committed to it as a staff and, and some staffs will be some staffs won't be and it's just what it is but you know be an advocate for that though uh, be an advocate to have a max block team because again it's another situation that you have to look at the players and say did i prepare these guys to win this game and they fought really hard you know they fought their ass off for 59 and a half minutes or 59 minutes and 55 seconds and they're in position to win a game and now it comes down to five seconds and we didn't take the time to install a max block team to give ourselves the best chance to, to secure the victory so I think that's on you know that's on us as coaches to make sure we do that and make sure our players always know that we're working as hard as we can to to make sure we get to win those situations yeah I love it you said you know own your 20 square feet uh something We've talked about on this podcast before with Brian Kite, but owning that part of the culture, right, you are responsible for it. So I like that approach to it. Maybe you don't get it done, but at least you're advocating for your players to put them in the best position possible. And that takes us to our final part of our defensive podcast, option, defending the option. This week, the focus on the Georgia State Army game, uh, looking at the defensive ends and defending the QB sweep play. Yeah, so Georgia State played Army in 3-4 structure most of the time. They play different techniques with the ends. You come into those games, and you're going to be an odd structure. The, the, the play you know you're going to get is midline. Right? You know you're going to get midline, and you got to make a decision is what technique can we play the ends in to make sure they can get to the dive, right? Do they have to be four eyes to get there? Can they be four techniques and make it? Sometimes – and they be fives and the guy veer around and they go, I mean, to be honest, that happened in this game. Georgia State was able to play a five, let the tackle veer down and still hit the fullback, right? Their defensive ends played extremely hard and aggressive. I was very impressed by how those guys played. But you're going to go through that conversation every time. And then if they are, if you do play four eyes in base defense, now it comes back to, are you a true, like, are you playing a two eye off the tackle like some people or are you playing – almost like a wide three where you have visual key and pressure key off the tackle and the guard. 
So those are the de decisions you got to make because what happens is why people want to widen them. Obviously, it makes sense if you're only got to worry about midline that you just play a four eye because you get them closer to the dive. But when you start plugging inside backers and you run internal pressures, you're stepping those guys to five techniques typically. And so they got to step to a five to become a quarterback player. So when they do that, can they do that from a four eye? Do they have to be a four technique to do that? If they're a four technique, they really just step vertical up the field, let the tackle veer inside, and they're all put themselves in position. When they're a four eye, they got to step. The tackle might be veering or arcing a little bit. They run into them. Do they really get in position to play the quarterback? So that's always a, a debate as an odd defense is where do we play those guys to not give away, all right, we can't just line them up in fives every time we're pressuring and we don't want to be in four eyes if they can't make the trip out to, to cross the tackle's face and then sit down and play the quarterback. So I think that's a debate and a conversation and something that you got to do when you're playing these guys out of an odd structure. It, it is uh, something that you really got to figure out. But if you watch Georgia State, man, they, they played them in all three techniques at different times, and they were really, really successful taking the dive and playing the quarterback when they had to. So I was impressed by their DM play and just, how they handled that. Now, the quarterback sweep play has become a play. I see it every week, basically. Army is really good at it. Air Force is really good at it. I have not seen Navy run it quite as much. A lot of times they'll run it out of the double squeeze, condensed bone set, or even just regular bone. But it has become an epidemic in stopping this thing. And so one thing, if you're getting a lot of that play, the, the thing I found to be the best defense to it is having an on-the-ball C-gap defender. And I say that because what you will find is if the slot blocks an on-the-ball C-gap defender, it is not an option play. So the fastest thing, because when you don't have an on-the-ball C-gap defender, this play looks exactly like load option. But the ball is not getting pitched. All right, There's a guy in pitch phase, quarterback's rolling like it's load option, but the ball is not getting pitched, right? And there's nothing to tell you that because the slot will load. He'll load whoever's scraping to the C-gap, right? The fullback will roll, either block the outside backer or the safety, and then whoever's got the pitch will roll to that pitch player who's not really a pitch player, right? He'll block one by, by not just being out there. So but when you put a guy in the C-gap and you can say, hey, if that slot blocks the guy in the C-gap, not not option so don't worry about the pitch player don't worry about the guy on the pitch right this is q sweep okay so i think that that is a, a trick or a technique that is important if you're getting a lot of q sweeps they're wearing you out with it. that's why you know in most defenses you know either you're four down or maybe you get into some bear or something like that to get a c gap player if you're playing an odd structure you're typically not going to have that right unless you do widen them out to five on one side something like that but if there is that c gap player and they're running that play they're going to block them so, and that's what you can tell your guys key in that slot. Hey, if he blocks the C gap on the ball, C gap defender, this is not an option play, right? This is a Q sweep. So I think that's important. And you see it on tape a lot. You see guys running out there to the, to the pitch and then the quarterback just ducking it in there. And it sometimes, I mean, it works so good. Sometimes it looks like it's stealing. I mean, I remember 2019 air force was running that play and they were just murdering people with it. And you really have to dig into the little nuances of that play to kind of figure out things to tell your guys based on the structure you're going to be in and what, the, what their keys are going to do. So uh, important play that's coming. I said that the two plays, I think we talked about last week, the two plays that are really kind of defined the option for me in the last couple of years is the zone dive with the fullback 
and then this quarterback sweep play. And if you can get those two stopped and get a handle on those two, usually you, you can have, you know, you're going to get them back into traditional option stuff, which you pick your poison, I guess. But these two, those two plays have been very difficult for people to stop over the last couple of years. Well, Coach, another great week packed full of insight and tips and coaching points. Really appreciate you, as always, putting this together. And uh, we got another exciting week of football. We continue on with the season, and we'll have more of this here. So thanks again, Coach, for your time and preparation. Thanks, Keith. Thanks for having me.